This is the friend season. This is the friend season. Ask Ale and Anna. This is the friend season of Ask Adele and Anna. Adele and Anna. <laughs> Welcome to Ask Adelaide and Anna. I'm Adelaide Jagade. And I'm Anna Ilet, and we are artists and friends. And today, and for our next episodes this season, we are joined by friends of Ask Adelaide and Anna and friends of me. And me. Welcome to episode number two of season five of Ask Adelaide and Anna. This episode is about work. And the questions that we receive are so often about work. And for this episode, our cast of friends help us deal with hierarchy, self-doubt, in many ways, new takes on the questions that we keep addressing. And it's funny how we ended up getting so many work questions, because when we started this podcast, it wasn't even necessarily for artists, was it? It was just advice podcasts in general. We were taking like any kind of question. Yeah. Maybe that's some sort of uh, lesson for us. Like, who do we know or who do we talk to? Yeah. Who's our audience? Yeah. Maybe that's another <laughs> another season for us to get help with. But even though we keep sort of addressing similar questions again and again, I really feel refreshed by every new person that like, brings in new perspectives because I keep having these like moments where I'm like, oh, really? Wow, I didn't think about that. And it was strange for me even, you know, I live with someone who answered one of these questions and I, I didn't think of the experience that he went through that was perfect for answering the question. Like it didn't even occur to me, you know, like he had the perfect example of the question that's coming up about vanguarding in the arts and institution when you're the person who has to speak out against something that's that's wrong but it might take a toll on your own mental health and sanity yeah no we definitely have some guests with like very specific experience and knowledge that so much can address the questions that we've received and I think one of the reasons why we get so many work questions is that there are a lot of outlets if someone wants like love advice there are a lot of podcasts there are a lot of advice columns there are a a whole lot of things that you can access in the media that are going to give you advice about love or going to analyze different situations that you might find yourself in. But when it comes to work, it doesn't usually apply to the art world. We have like our own set of problems that aren't the same as someone working in a corporate office would have. And it's so undefined. Like there's no manuals or books, as far as I know, on some of these issues. No, and some of the advice that we receive is also really quite... um... Yeah, they vary. So I really hope that the ones who has been asking questions really can find sort of a way to listen to what's being said here and then sort of reflect it to their heart and see like what what makes sense and what doesn't. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's really good is that is having multiple perspectives on the same question. I mean, we've done that in the past, but having them back to back, you know, in the same episode two people who maybe don't even know each other and don't know what the other person said. It can be interesting to hear what two particular people say in response to a question. And there are definitely some more, if I can say so, like harsher or like more <laughs> more blunt advice yes. or personalities in this season. So that'll be interesting yeah. to, to see how it will come together. It was funny when we were recording, you know, sometimes I had a, uh, I know I had like a look of shock on my face based on someone's answer, but that, that doesn't translate into audio. <laughs> To your listeners, I guess you could try to like figure out like when was Adelaide's face like that. <laughs> well, we hope you in- enjoy episode two of season five, the friend season. It's the friend season. <laughs> it's, it's the, the friend, friend season. season. <laughs> Dear Adelaide and Anna, how do you navigate expressing issues you have with bad terms around an exhibition in an established space where the art institution clearly screwed up? without risking ending up on bad terms when the people behind the space are 
important people. Khalil Robert Irving. I'm willing to burn bridges, but I think the in the relationship that you desire to have with the organization, it's like depending on what that is, you have to like figure out what's more important. Is it the moral or the ethical uh, point of the argument or the disruption, or is it just because of on the scale of one to ten, how serious is it? And then are you you know willing to say your piece and like make sure that they know how you feel first? And like in the end, that's what matters the most. Or are you willing to have a continued dialogue? And as one of the other parties not willing to listen, you know, inherently that then will burn their bridge. And I'm speaking from my own experience, from interacting with several people, some people just aren't really interested in having critical feedback and critical dialogue. They're willing to engage and perform what it means to be in these roles and positions and operate in spaces, but they're not necessarily willing to truly take a self-reflexive point of view to really get into the nitty gritty of why there is a problem in the first place. And so inherently the bridge was already burned because that person had no intention in building a relationship with you in the first place. I mean, I don't first go to burn bridges. I first go to try to mediate and have some common ground, but you know, in a lot of ways, if you even think about the possibility of that occurring usually it's already there even before you've even done anything yeah i think sometimes what this has to do with is with power because the person wants to express themselves they want to say like you screwed up we had certain terms and now you've broken them or the exhibition isn't going as you said or you didn't do what you promised but they can't say that because the other person has more power than them and they feel like if they cause any problems then it's going to affect their future isn't that how you would see it? Like, it depends. Like, there's so many variables in this question that uh, have to kind of be expanded upon. Like a group exhibition, in the end, if it's a work that's going to get returned to you, you can always exhibit it again and, and photograph it again at a different location. And sometimes in some, like in some ways, that the severity of a group exhibition, depending on the scale of the museum, it's it's going to be all right. Let me do a hypothetical. Say you have an exhibition you've been looking forward to maybe your whole career. Like right now you have an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Say in the process of making the exhibition, things weren't going well, but you want this so badly. How do you navigate that? That's the situation this person is in. They don't want to burn. They want the show to happen. They don't want to burn bridges. Yes, currently I do have an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City projects, Khalil Robert Irving. And to be honest with you, that was not the most ideal opportunity. Like the way that it came to me was that it was six months out from what I understand there had been conversation and discussion and something didn't work out. And so they asked me and already I had very little time to conceive of the project. And I think some other artists would have said no. But I knowing myself and knowing that I keep work for myself, I, at one point I tried to sell everything that I had. Now I don't try to sell everything that I have. So I have a repository of my own work. I knew with that repository and the possibility of what I could do in the installation, I shifted my behavior and really made an installation that could be, could be flexible in relationship to the tensions that the institution would bring. Each institution has a bureaucracy all its own. And so you have to speak your truth, but you also have to find a place to where you can edit and not necessarily speak too much and be, be willing to step back and see the bigger picture of what's most important. It's not always going to go the way you want it to. 
no matter how beautiful or grand the show is. I think I'd say it's never going to go the way you want it to, from my experience. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Thinking about another exhibition that I have coming up, the people that I'm working with, they are a dream. And it is quite amazing. But I think exhibition construction is very similar to uh, building relationship. And so if you have a short-term engagement that's only business-oriented, you won't be able to get as much satisfaction out of it as possible. But if if all parties really want to be there and they don't just see it as work, it can be fabulous. I think it really makes a lot of sense not to, yeah, not to give one specific answer to this question, because as both of you say, like every exhibition or every, every collaboration, every relationship is specific or individual. So in one sense, got to just figure out like what's important to value and to maintain and to take care of and what can go like what is not important and how much you're willing to put up to give an example when i was approached by another gallery or another museum to do an exhibition they asked me to wrap the whole gallery in a wallpaper collage then i made a model in photoshop of what all the gallery wrapped in wall vinyl would look like then they took it to the fabricator to print the wallpaper and it was astronomically expensive bigger than the exhibition's budget and they came back and were like well we uh, would rather you do something else but didn't say that they would rather me do something else they like coded use coded language and so then I created another exhibition model in Photoshop and then they had an issue with that because of ADA accessibility, you know, accessibility to content. So it was a conceptual issue. Like there were so many things built around my second model. And in a lot of ways, when you're dealing with exhibition construction or constructing projects, it is a dialogue. Unless the person is like cold and brute and just like not going to talk to you, there is a way in to that dialogue and you have to also be willing to kind of find the spaces where where you can pull it out because it could then become a lot of fun and as you said that you have a you have a dialogue going on now which is really good and i think dialogues can also be longer than the show you know like some people some curators some colleagues are there are conversations that can go on long term which can sort of uh, reappear in other exhibitions or projects but really sort of take care of the ones that are fruitful and fun and take care of the ones that are complicated and not fun to deal with i mean there are a lot of curators that i do not like personally but in the business of making art and making exhibition and making projects it's not necessarily about me as an individual it is about the work and it's about those people who are also doing the work and so is there you can have the one people that you really like and you really want to be around like i really enjoy spending time with Adelaide and Lyndon but there are also curators that I don't necessarily like but I have to work with and I do appreciate uh, their candor and like somehow you have to find something in it that is uh, fruitful and powerful. Annelise Kogan. Since I've been working quite a lot like with alternative spaces and I'm also like kind of quite like do-it-yourself type <laughs> in art like I, I've created quite a lot of platforms by myself. It's been a bit weird because I haven't really worked so much with big institutions in art but I've worked a lot for money jobs and collaborated and, and bigger projects with like bigger institutions in in Norway uh, different like uh, for middling um, education educational yeah like uh, opening up you know for 
uh, yeah, youth that is living uh, outside of Oslo or, you know, or like this center and this outreach things and stuff. So I've done, a, I've done a lot of different things. So I kind of have these different perspectives, but like, I haven't really experienced so many bad things in that way. So let's say uh, the institution have um, either like broke an agreement or uh, are not uh, treating the artist the way they should. I have experienced it, but I, I think when it's happened, I've always kind of gone to the source, in, sort of say, and it's been hard. I, I've had some tough like processes, I feel, with these kind of institutions, but like you just have to like let them know and then possibly end the thing end the project like I at least I've ended stuff like there hasn't been signs of like communication or collaboration in a way like I think it's hard to work in it and then did you end up on bad terms with the people the quote-unquote important people well I think it's a good question because it's like how is it left in your mind you know like are we on bad terms like or what does that mean like what can they do you know and what is that power when I started the process of like kind of ending or like leaving or whatever, then it was really hard. Like you, you feel that power and you feel like very small somehow. And but I think it's also like a process because it, it is a lot in in your own head or my own head or whatever. But it takes some time to get over. But like I think time helps and, and you distance yourself and you kind of also see like the the situation like from a distance and you can kind of I don't know, get over it somehow, you know. It's very hard when you're in it, I think, and it can be a lot of pressure and stress and uh, anxiety, I think. When you're not hurt and, and there is this power balance, absolutely. I don't think that at the end, like, we're on bad terms, but, you know, I don't know what they think of me or whatever, you know, but I don't right. care, really. Uh, in the question, it sounds like they're automatically expecting that the that they will get on bad terms with the people if the art institution has clearly screwed up it sounds like they still haven't had a dialogue i can understand it in a way because it can be like often people that are like sitting in these positions you know that have like they have full-time jobs you know they go home and they're like okay i did my job today like i wasn't maybe great but you know but like we are we're in this different position you know like we we're kind of left there with all these different like uh, projects and links and and people all the time and and I think like sometimes you don't you can't just connect with these people you know like that are it's kind of a bit up to you I think to leave it as well you know and if they think that we're on bad terms then I don't know I'm always quite honest you know like maybe too honest I don't know but then at least they know what I what I think and then yeah but imagine you've signed a contract and you really need the money that is coming from this project then it's a little different it is and I, i'm in some things now and I'm thinking a lot about those things like when we are proceeding with the contract or whatever you know so you have to be kind of a bit beho- beforehand too but it's hard to know at least when you're working with like relational projects in public uh, space and and with the public it's very hard to know like exactly what it would be yeah it's like you have to be on top of things all the time like <laughs> it's true yeah because i feel like i approach projects optimistically and then the the things I didn't think about start coming out, you know, where somebody says it's going to be this way and then you have an expectation and then they like, actually, can you do this press thing? Actually, can you do that? All this stuff that you never agreed to, never wanted to do. If something isn't in the agreement, then I just try to find a nice way to say no. It's almost like for every good, no, not every question, but for a lot of questions we have in the conversations we have, we sort of, uh, one of the advice or one of the answers to almost uh, everything would be like team up with someone 
community or talk to your talk to your colleague like this i think is a little bit like another question we tackled last season where it can be like okay talk to another person who's been having exhibitions in the same place and maybe they have the same similar experience maybe you can help each other out or that other person can help you navigating the people or like who to talk to what kind of ways can be smart to yeah which to address certain topics and so on And then you don't always have to assume that things are going to go badly because there have been times where I feel like if I say no to something or if I say, actually, that's not what we agreed to, that that it's going to be bad. But then sometimes the person's just like, okay. I think that's a good point. And I think that's kind of uh, one of the most important things, like that you kind of you're allowed to say no and you're also allowed to question what is what do you want kind of thing. We do it too little. And that's why it's also like so easy to um, get us freelancers or whatever, like artists to do stuff, you know? I think by letting people know how they screwed up and put it in a constructive, like it doesn't have to be constructive, but if you put it in a constructive way, you're also doing it uh, like a, that's generous and can be very helpful and you might receive a thank you. I mean, where maybe not, (laughs) it can happen. It is generous because you're kind of showing them something, enlightening something that they're obviously not been thinking about, you know, so I think that's generous. When reading this, my first idea in a Norwegian context would be like, call the union lawyer. Yeah. That sounds amazing. <laughs> There's no one to call for me. If they take the phone, you know. Oh, yeah. I think they have they've been getting a lot of calls during COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I think Norway is, of course, great. And you just have to kind of reach out, you know, like you said, Anna, before. We can do that, you know, like with each other and just reach out and ask for something. I think we do it too little and I think it's important, like, that we discuss and stuff. But of course, it's like sometimes it can become this, like, everyone talks together, you know, and it's just such a small art world and then everyone knows and it it can become a bit, like, difficult as well, you know. Yeah, That actually happened to me when there was something that I reacted on. Instead of talking directly with an institution, I like I went to talk to a colleague. Then when I talked to the institution again, I was asked, oh, have you talked to colleagues? You're giving us a very bad rep- reputation. So it kind of like backfired a bit on me. So that was a little bit scary. So it, it was fine in the end. Then I was like, okay, I should have been more cautious. And now I'm not advocating for like a radical act at all. I'm just going like, to ask for help and then go carefully check the water. I don't know. It depends, of course, what what kind of situation it is as well. You know, it's hard to say. Like, but you feel kind of mistreated, but you need the money, and you're pressured, and and you're kind of risking to be like blacklisted or something. I don't know. But so, at the same time, it's just all those things are also like so just so weird, you know, because it's like you're working hard and you're living this art life and stuff, and then there's like all these things that are like you have to watch out and like not be angry or something. I don't know. It's like also a bit weird, you know, because it's like it's not easy life either. So basically you shouldn't be too scared of ending up on bad terms with people I don't think so at least because I think if we kind of are less afraid then it will be a more like open conversation yeah or like if more people do it then it's like they have to also those people that are kind of doing things wrong also have to kind of shut beside they have to yeah get their rights together dear Adelaide and Anna I've been thinking a lot lately on the notion of vanguarding in the arts. As we seek to change art spaces and the vocabulary surrounding art created by BIPOC artists, BIPOC is Black, Indigenous, People of Color, and cultural workers, 
One of the things that it seems like we all agree upon is that we should expect casualties in this process of working to break structures of whiteness in these spaces. With casualties, I mean BIPOC, queer, trans people on the front lines that often get or take on the role of mitigating bias and navigating imperial or white structures at the cost of their own mental health. As I see it, there are two types of positions and then two types of costs, one where you work from within the art spaces and the other where you establish spaces outside of it. What baby are we throwing out with the proverbial bathwater in either of these positions? Are there better ways to work and possibly reject this idea of casualties? So basically, the question is from a person of color who is saying, should they work within institutions towards change? You know, because these predominantly white institutions, is it better to work from within the institution or do you just establish spaces outside of it? Do you just say this whole system isn't working? We can't do anything from within it. We need to create a new reality. And then in the process, they're saying, when they say casualties, I think it refers to maybe people who might risk losing friends or risk losing their job. Yeah, losing opportunities because they are the face of speaking against change at their institution or in their city or wherever. Kiyoshi Yamamoto. And also the mental health, I think is a very important, you know what I mean? Like, because in the end, also you have that cost that is no price. You know, you cannot make value of your mental health. So you can value to lose a job. You're going to lose this much of dollar a year, this amount, but you cannot measure the cost of having a, a mental health issue. And I, what I understood also from this question, if we try to break down, it's like, is worth to keep the fight inside the institution to try to open those spaces, being a person of color in there, or is better just to step out from that, those danger kind of mess out white space and build your own safe space outside of this problematic institution thing. So I think it's like, this is, the, this is what they ask. And also that person has, I want understood he's asking like, it is all the different ways to, to be able to do both without get this um, consequence. If I could translate myself, it is like, oh, it's a shit job. And it's a lot of fight. I get mental tired of being this person saying like, hey, hello, I do also exist. This is not okay. And then the end is like, should I stay here and get well sick and <laughs> mental tired and maybe have a breakdown? Or should I just move on and open my own institution and keep myself safe? I understood like that. And then also like what is being lost in the process is part of the question. Say you're working at an institution, your mental health is deteriorating. You're the person that's saying, you know, how come we aren't showing more diverse artists? How come we don't have a more diverse staff and then you leave because you're mentally exhausted then now the institution's even less diverse and then maybe your coworker, who like the only reason they stayed was because at least there were two of you maybe they leave too so that's maybe what gets thrown out with the with the bathwater. exactly oh i feel for this person i have been in this uh, situation <laughs> lately <laughs> and i do really feel i feel that this is so hard but baby it is a mess and honestly, when you are part of a minority, it's not that you can just change. It's going to be you. You're going to be that forever. You cannot turn it off. It's not like, I don't like this light. I'm going to just turn it off. You cannot just turn it off. So you're going to bear this with you forever. And if you care about your cause and your people, you'll be always a kind of fight and this yeah. fight has this consequence that can lift us up you know sometimes a good fight can really lift up like wow like oh i give it so much but can also 
push you down so hard <laughs> that you know you leave a job or maybe you lose opportunity or maybe you get be this hated person in a workspace or maybe you're like oh people can look you from distance like oh this is gonna be a question lately i have this person who, <laughs> who i'll collaborate with that there was like oh but it, why do you always have to get personal i was like because it is personal it's, mm. it's just like to be confronted like that when you are trying to just be yourself so I feel that my strategy for all of that is to get help. You know, I have been getting help for many, many years, like to find out when I'm on those danger situations, when the situation take out of, out of control, how to react to those situations. And also if I'm up to that fight, if that fight will get me in mm. the place I want, or if I just let that person mm. go and save the fight for them, <laughs> like, Choose your so, battles. Yeah. You ask for help. What does that mean? I ask for help. Ask friends for help. You know, like I know like my network. Let's say that I mean I have asked you, Anna, for help. You know that. <laughs> I do that. I go in, I go and ask in a message immediately, like, am I wrong on this? You know, like let's say that you are up in a situation and you like don't understand what's going on and you just feel like angry and like, oh pussy, I will do something and like I will react. And in this react, you're going to stress yourself and go to your mental health somehow. I know to recognize, now I know a little bit more how to recognize this feeling. And the first thing I do is like ask for a second opinion. <laughs> I said, I find the first number, the first uh, contact I have that I feel safe. And like, is this actually insane? Or am I just drinking too much? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> can you please... <laughs> help me to like dissolve this like what we are doing now you know like and then yeah. send and then you know when someone see from outside and with a different background than mine can react different and if both me and that person reacted like then i'm like okay then i have to fight then this need a fight then this place needed and then i feel like another thing also that i do is like before i really send emails if i got provoked by someone for a co-worker or collaborate i was like answer that immediately now i have drafts i put in the draft i put in the draft folder i put all my anger in there blah, blah, blah. put in the draft give me a cup of coffee take a glass of water go in the toilet, come back, read that draft. Because then you are, I'm not that angry anymore. And then I can really make all the points clear, you know, because the problem is the impulsive. And it is a problem. And But at the same time, it's so good that people is finally listening. <laughs> I know. For me, what's depressing is when there are these exhibitions that talk about Black artists in the 70s or something like that. And you see that they were fighting a lot of the same fights. And you see that there was like... You know, there's a lot of activity and then maybe there was like a gap for and there probably wasn't a gap, maybe just for those people, the way they're being presented, there was a gap in the fight or other people picked up the fight. And it's like you could have devoted your whole career to fighting against injustice, you know, as an artist in the 70s, your whole work, everything you talked about, everything you did. And then you're now an elderly person and you're the same conversations are happening or institutions are just now starting to question their structures or, you know, how they do things. It's kind of depressing. It is depressing, and that's why I'm saying that it's a hard thing. It's not really easy. I graduated for 10 years ago. Exactly this year, 2012 was when I graduated uh, from my MA, and I feel that after that I, I become a professional, try to become a professional artist. Um, it is 10 years. If I, some situations I have been 
in the beginning of this path, if I had reacted as I reacted today, no one, you listen, but no one that time would have even kind of stopped to say like, hmm. And I feel that emotion, no way. I feel that because it is this really strong um, movement somehow to really let people be aware, like this is not okay. Or maybe like, oh, you are maybe in the need for new readings. You know what I mean? How many times I have been given like reading lists for institutions? I just make the reading list and get, hey, Merry Christmas, by the way, you can read this, 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 this. And then I come in there and I see that they bought the book. You know what I mean? Like, and it makes me feel so good because it's like, I felt that, hey, someone actually got my passive aggressive (laughs) (laughs) note and actually is reading this. It's not that it's going to change and it's going to be better, but I feel that someone can listen, but it can be that tomorrow everything collapses. You know, like, for instance, it's one thing when I'm in Norway and it's one thing when I'm in Brazil, you know, like the politics that's now in Brazil is not the same that's in here. If you go in there as a person of color and try to say anything, people are going to laugh in your face like, oh, you are just crying and begging for compassion. People are going to laugh on your face. So I feel that it's a very hard time, but I have a little hope. And I hope that this friend do not give up that job. Hello, friend. Do not give up the good job. Being there. Find your tools. Find your friends. And get in the border of this place. <laughs> Change the law. Fire the people. I do that lately. Get in the border. Like when they're going to renew the contract, not you. Let's have another one. Ask also, why do you have all those available positions and use only hire people like you? I have been asking that in all the places I work lately. Why everyone here look like you and you had like five open positions last semester? <laughs> and, and, and I do like laughing, but I'm very serious. You know what I mean? Like, and I really mean it. I mean, watching out. So for everyone in Norway, I'm watching out. And you may <laughs> get my reading list next Christmas. <laughs> But uh, it's really hard and I could really, uh, I mean, I wish I was this person's friend so this person could get me by Instagram or whatever and I couldn't bitch with her or with him in, about this other people. What do you guys think? about that. I think it's really tough because I've been in a position where I was speaking out a lot. I had no support. This is when I was in graduate school. I tried to go to other people in other departments. And at some point I had to decide, okay, I'm here to get my master's degree and I'm going to continue to do some of this work in my artwork, but I'm not going to fight all these battles right now for my own mental health because it was uh, it was a bit much. I have two choices. One is to stay really quiet and give to people what they want. It's like colorful, flamboyant uh, me. Or I can actually tell people that this is not okay. And I'm trying to do this lately because I have some platforms and I feel that I also had to, again, you ain't there in this place. Like, I'm not born a leader. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not this person who likes to lead people. I never had this idea. I always, I'm so individual. I really like to be myself. I'm a very selfish person. <laughs> I mean, I was. Now I'm changing. But I feel that I have to do this because um, it's very hard. I have, I know many, many friends in here around me that has been uh, getting such a tough time. And it has been like getting this punch every time. And I feel like I had not spent 25 years with psychiatrists to not be prepared <laughs> to punch back. And then you mm. punch beautifully, like getting the board of things. I go straight to the director. I invite them for coffee. I have been, invi- I had a director of a very large institution that I just like, you need to get a coffee with me. We need to get a coffee together. I really have to tell everything. <laughs> 
<laughs> and she came and we take the coffee and had a whole list like this, 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 this. And by the way, you people are not that good. <laughs> so you actually cannot be that nasty. But at the same time, I know that this going a cost that I can sometimes feel like, you know, rejected or something or don't get a project that I want. Or maybe I have to say no to work with people. I have been lately and have to say no to exhibiting places that I have been always dream about it. But I know that it's a place that's nasty. I'm like, you are nasty. So you're not going to get my money. And by the way, if I could get my friend money back, it would be really good. So it's up to you. And I know that maybe you make that my career is not going to like go in this speed that I wish faster can be that maybe I will lose many many opportunities but I feel that I don't want to have that bad opportunity anyway I think what I'm learning from what you've said and what um, we've discussed about some other things in the past is that it helps if you have community like if you have someone to go with you and I my advice to white people who are listening is if you have a friend of color or if you're even if you're like a man and a woman is telling you this telling you something about the institution you both work at together or some space you're both working with, you have more power in that situation to say something. And you should totally and completely back your friend. If you see something that's wrong, don't stay quiet because it's, first of all, it's easier. You're you're not the one that's being affected. And then second, like, how are we going to change things if we, if all the white people are quiet when they see injustice happening in front of them? So if your colleague says, how come, you know, all the artists we've shown in the past three years at our space are all white, you need to be like, yeah, how come? You know, you need to just stand up and also be a voice in there. Like, don't leave people to be alone, because so many times that's been the problem. That's why I haven't been able to carry on with something that I wanted to fight for, because I was the only one. And sometimes I was the only person of color. So the only people who could join and talk with, you know, talk about it with me would be the white people and they just stay quiet. And sometimes people think that, oh, I just don't want to have a conflict. So I will just keep myself quiet. And I feel, but I will do the fight. I just need you to stand in here. (laughs) You will have to say nothing. You just stand here by my side. I will do all the fight myself, but just to know that when there, you make me a kind of go forward. I just quit a job because of that because I did not want to work with the person who did not back me up and I was like I will lose that money that you'll be very good for my skincare but I will not stand in there for you you know what I mean like because if the opposite happens I know I will stand for that person if you're a white straight guy you don't know you can just stand and then look to the other ones and this you help so much so please I was in a situation that actually was when uh, I realized, this was at art school, was when I realized that I will always have this problem to stand by alone and I had to hang with those people, you'll be alliance. It was like I was in a, in a very small art school, art academy. We have a very little class, like, well, like, very few people. I was the only gay guy like immigrant, the whole package, not really from the white. And we had another immigrant young lady in this class. The whole group make a party and did not invite us to. And it was when I realized that it was really important for me to hang with that friend, with that person. I mean, I was immediately like, we're going to be, we're going to make our party and they will actually come and pay for it. <laughs> so I was like, I, I, we just make a plan. Like, let's make this party. come, And when they come, we're going to charge them at the door and it was so good to have this alliance you know what I mean like because we made a party everyone wants to come and we stand the door we got like a hundred pounds from each and you're like look bitches <laughs> <laughs> 
we, you not invite us for the last weekend party. We make this party and we actually make 5,000. So it was when I realized with that friend that was really important that we two, we two people who are not white and really different and weird, it was really important that we hang together because our power, us two, I could not have done that alone. I could have yeah. never made that party alone. You know what I mean? Like, and we, when we confront the class because we had those Monday meetings when, you know, Everyone sit there and then talk about it. And, you know, and then we told them the truth, like, oh, blah, blah, blah. like, no, 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 no. It's because we just invited the single people. So like, it's getting worse because she's single. <laughs> and then they said, no, 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 because everyone was heterosexual. You're getting worse. She's very heterosexual. You know what I mean? Like all the excuse they made did not make mm. sense. But that action was really important for what I am today. Because you know, I realized that I had to hang with the people who look like me and we together, we can make quite a lot. And I feel that after that conversation we had with the class, they understood. Of course, they tried to be more considered. And when they made those type of party, they did not let us to know <laughs> anymore. So that they find another strategy to escape not invited us. But at the same time, I got such a good bound with that person that until today, we've, that we live in totally different countries. I feel that, you know, we have these things together. So alliance is really important. Lyndon Barwa Jr. The word casualties is really striking. <laughs> but uh, but I, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I get it. I mean, there is the threat or the worry that, you know, to to burn bridges essentially is is to create a situation where you, you're not allowed back in, you know, whatever that means. I think this maybe could be answered uh, in a couple of different ways, you know, one from sort of the institutional standpoint of like, you know, being kind of an, an arts worker or, you know, someone who works in the realm of what, cultural production. And But I could even, I'm, I'm even reading into this like as an artist and as an art maker and sort of like what your work is about or what you feel your work needs to be about. You know, I've, I've been in this situation, you know, working at museums um, and, and now for the first time being full-time at a, at a university. And, and I've been in a situation in which, you know, I, I did have to mitigate bias in a, in a weird way. Um, Can you explain for uh, us non-English speakers what that would mean, mitigating bias? I, essentially, like being the, the middle the middle person, right? Being like the, or at least how I'm reading it, of, of kind of being the, the one person in the room who's recognizing that there is an issue when no one else sees it, and then kind of speaking out or kind of explaining why there's an issue uh, when, when others don't get it and, and when it actually threatens the, the smooth running of, of whatever program is happening. And so, yeah, I, there was the case where I was working at a contemporary museum and the, the work that was supposed to be going on view was, well, it became controversial, but, it, you know, it was quite actually old work. It was work that had like a long life and had been shown before, but the time at which it came to the city, <laughs> you know, of St. Louis that I was living in, which, you know, was, you know, not far from Ferguson and, and kind of the, the, the protests and uh, issues that were being confronted there. This work, which had like incredibly jarring racial under and overtones, you know, was 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 met with a lot of confusion, you know, from both internally and externally, you know, so from from the from a lot of staff workers and from the general public. And there was a it was a huge event, you know, that started with the artist talk and, you know, the questioning of the artists and the artists unwillingness to answer questions about the work. I mean, I will name the artist. Was, the artist is Kelly Walker. And it was kind of a big mid career retrospective of, of his work. And yeah, it, it, it just it created a, a, a series of divisions, you know, you know, amongst amongst artists, amongst staff members um, and, and things were sort of forever changed. And for me, there was really the question of like, 
like, you know, do I stay within this place that is seeming to like condone, you know, the work? I mean, obviously a museum wants to sort of support the artists that they show, you know, it kind of looks bad to, to sort of give an artist an opportunity and then take it away. I mean, this I, for me was an exceptional case uh, you know, I think there are a lot of cases throughout history in which the work of artists is, is met with like, you know, public critique, you know, because of things that they were speaking against. You know, we think of like Kara Walker's work, or we think of Andre Serrano's Piss Christ, you know, and, and, and the various communities that they upset. But this seemed strikingly different because it was primarily, you know, the black community in, in St. Louis that was like, you know, what is, what are these images, you know, being made by, you know, this, this white male artist? I think internally, you know, there were, there were just a number of things that were being navigated. Uh, and so the, the structures that sort of uphold and support museums, uh, even nonprofit, non-collecting institutions, what was revealed to me in, in kind of like a sad and, and depressing way. Uh, so yeah, I was just faced with the question of like, do I remain or do I do I go? You know, like, and, and kind of asking this question that, that's being posed is like, is it better to like speak to this from within this place or to do something outside of it? And I, you know, again, I felt then and I still feel now that I do think there's value in, in remaining in a situation and changing it from within because there's so much heavy lifting in, in, in like establishing instit an institution outside of the sort of main you know the mainstream of, of institutions right like if you're if you're marginalized within the room that you already have access to um they're you know certainly not going to care about you if you're no longer there <laughs> you know that that's an easy out right it's it's like in in some ways you're doing them a favor that's not it's not to say that we need kind of alternative uh, spaces and institutions because you know that's a reality as well that we do need them or we don't need we them. do we do of course uh and but even the ones that already exist are are marginalized in their own way you know um regardless of, of, of sort of how much you know we want to celebrate them i think they're still not seen in the, in the same way that these kind of major dominant institutions are right and so so in terms of casualties, being one of the few people of color that was working at this institution, you're not only, you weren't only part of the institution, you're also part of the black community in that city, you're also part of the artist community. So do you feel like out of, there were three of you who wrote an open letter, do you feel like they're, would you use the term casualty in this way to talk about what happened to all of you or no? Um, I don't think so. I think we each got an enormous amount of support on both sides, actually, which is, which is kind of strange. Like, you know, even prior to, to kind of releasing the letter publicly, like we did that to all the staff first. So everyone knew it was coming and everyone understood what was happening. The aftermath, the effect of that, I think maybe created a different situation. But I think one would expect that we would all be fired immediately for doing something like that, you know, uh, but that wasn't the case. So we were, we all held our posts. We all like elected to, to not fulfill certain um, certain roles in, in in relation to this exhibition as a kind of protest. Well, there was there was a couple of things going on, right? And so, which also I guess is is addressed in this in this question. Um, one of the first reactions when there was like a public outcry was like there was me and one of the other person of color in my department. You know, we were kind of in the same department, which was um, learning and engagement. <laughs> So yeah, it's the education department, but it was, it was education, outreach, and public programs all in one. So learning and engagement was our was our area, and it was kind of like all eyes on us. Like, what do we do? 
you know, how do we solve this problem? Meanwhile, the, the curator who organized this like completely disappeared, right? Like took kind of like no real like public responsibility for what was going down. And so it was kind of left to us. And one of my roles was to give tours of the exhibition, which I elected to not do just because there was a disconnect between what the institution was saying about the work and what the artist was saying about the work. It, it left us in a position where none of us actually believed what, what was being written, you know, in all of our public statement. I, I think in retrospect, I, I, I would have put more effort into giving kind of an alternative tour of the show. Um, but I just wasn't equipped to do that. Was the museum's text, were they, so they were made sort of as a reaction to your letter? So it seemed like they were sort of trying to like fix it? No, I, I, the only thing that really happened was there was kind of a, there was a wall that was erected to block certain works, I believe it was, like upon entrance to the gallery, yeah, and then there was a sign saying that, you know, there's sensitive material on view or something, which actually, it wasn't super sensitive, it was just like the context that surrounded the, the, the motivation behind the work made it problematic, you know. Mm. Um, and so that was, that was kind of mis-messaging. Mis I don't know. <laughs> it was like not the, not the sort of the right approach to things. When I see signs like that, I always think, I think of it as kind of patronizing. I saw it in a French museum where it said, and maybe this was just the translation that made it patronizing, but it said, um, it said something about people with sensitive feelings or people who are easily offended, something like that, where it put it on the viewer, you know? I think that imagery in some ways was sensitive, you know, because some of that, in the museum where you worked, because, um... One of the images was a dog, like a police dog, attacking a black person. Yeah, and and, and the thing about, I think, the, the argument for that was like, oh, well, these are images that are widely used. Like, these are the same images that Andy Warhol used for a series of paintings, you know, in the, in the 1960s. And, you know, so it was there was a sense that these works, these images had a former life. So why are we taking offense now? A complete divorce from, like contemporary contexts of like what has what has resurfaced in this country right it was very complicated you know I, it, I, it's i'm still left in a position where i can't say that like i'm uh, not completely in the middle I, I i think i'm more on the side of critique than i am on the side of like save the museum you know what i mean just in terms of the way that things were handled you know there was kind of immaturity you know it, from from various people in, in, in either camp but yeah i still felt that you know it's i felt that it was more valuable you know i was also working with teens as one of my roles you know in every week and, and middle school students and it was my role to kind of bring artists into the museum to work with these students and so i i wanted to hold that position like i, I you know i wanted to maintain contact with these students that i had a relationship with and to be honest like I, we were really upfront with the about it like we had many conversations with the teens about what was happening and actually there was another project the kind of side project uh in which the, the teens also got to work directly with uh this, this artist and, and kind of curated a smaller show in, in the education gallery of his work and so they were very engaged and and kind of you know that whole experience was sort of upended by all of this the relationship with them had to be maintained as well mate what you're saying is maybe what would get thrown out with the bathwater that question because if you were to say, I, you know what, I'm not working at this institution anymore, I'm not going to be like one of the few people of color that speaks for the institution, then there's the other side of it, which is like what you're actually doing in your job, which is working with teens and giving them access to these spaces and teaching them about contemporary art and critique and, all, you know, doing different projects with artists. That would have been lost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and doing it with transparency, right? Not doing it to kind of maintain, you know, the situation pretending like everything's okay, like, you know, actually acknowledging like what's shifting, you know, and, and, and why this is a, why, why the, the events of this moment are happening and then like, you know, what do we do about this? 
considering that you chose to stay, there had to be some sort of structure or community that, that made it possible for you to want to stay, probably. Basically, there were not that many assholes in the institutions in the institution that made it possible for you to actually have some sort of dialogue. Not on a mass scale, <laughs> no. It's much more selective than that. And and honestly, yeah, the, the curator who organized this exhibition was, you know, the one who refused to, to kind of engage. And once they removed themselves, it was, I mean, that was sort of the element, you know, that, that would have been, I would say, kind of more toxic and uncooperative. I was on pretty, if not really good terms with everyone else. I mean, what ended, what ended up happening is, you know, the, the three of us sort of, the th we, we ended up leaving at various stages on our own terms. One uh, who actually initiated the letter in the first place, um, she left, she was the first to leave um, to, yeah, pursue other motivations and, and other kind of career goals of, of hers. Um, I think I left next with the the following summer i mean this this was in the fall of 2016 i left the following summer the the kind of tone of everything sort of like <laughs> died down you know uh, after the after the exhibition came down and new exhibitions opened this is of course you know cancellations you know from artists not wanting to participate in kind of exhibition replacements and after various boycotts and you know people refusing to come to the space for the public programs that we tried to hold to actually discuss the work in like a real and way. If I really wanted a career as a museum professional, maybe I would have stayed. Who knows? But ultimately, you know, I was I was I was also an artist and, and had those those aspirations. And so I left to be an artist, essentially, to pursue a, a residency opportunity. Uh, and then the third person left eventually on her own accord as well. Uh, so nothing directly related to this event, but but it certainly changed our our, our, our attitudes or at least like the way that we perceive um, the museum context, you know, as as, as employees. It's really great, though, that you that yeah you have this experience. It's perfect for them. When I assigned this question to you, I didn't even think about that, which is like, wow. I mean, I would say that played a big role in your mental health, at least at first. You know, like pub publicly breaking down and things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was the the most uh, publicly emotional that I'd ever imagined myself being. And on a word, there was a group of artists, friends of, of mine that agreed to do like a, a panel discussion about this uh, shortly after that. That artist talk that kind of like <laughs> crumbled everything. That was like nice, at least, you know, for to have some sort of like com camaraderie, you know, from from peers uh, in the city that were that were willing to, to kind of gather in the space for that. Dear Adelaide and Anna, what do you think of the artists that never get recognized professionally? Do you see the logic? Like, do they work too little, talk about irrelevant themes, mingle too little? I can see what the others are good at, read better than me. I'm happy for them and I wish them success. It's just hard on my self-esteem. Khalil Robert Irvin. It's tough. Community means everything. I was listening to a few of your other podcasts and you, you spoke to Pia and Satu. They described the way to approach a curator and it was like really interesting to hear what they were saying and hear Adelaide how you responded to what they were saying it's like sometimes it can seem like a very daunting task to want to send an email to someone I do have that daunting feeling but I don't let it consume me to disable the possibility of building because no matter what anybody else is doing everything around my work and all of our works is community and dialogue and not just friendships but people get can get to know who you are without you knowing who they are do you mean through your work 
yeah, your writing, your your presentations, uh, even if you have a small project at a cafe in a small town, if most of the town goes to that cafe and you have more than one project in that cafe, they're going to get to know who you are without ever seeing you. So what, because you have a, a wide variety of friends, you've been to undergraduate art school and graduate school and residencies and different things. So when you see people who aren't really getting recognized professionally, like maybe even people you think their work is good, what do you think they need to do that they aren't doing? Sometimes they need to sit back, step back out, like step back out from where they're like maybe, maybe really presenting themselves and be a little bit more willing to like be in neutral and not with their foot on the gas. Like some people are really hungry and some like in a place where I recently lived, some people were really, really hungry and they would reach out to all the galleries and like say, I have to have a gallery show. I have to do this. And I'm just like that kind of like aggressive behavior does not necessarily get, you know, get you the opportunities. One thing that we were talking about a few minutes ago is it's also is dialogue. So you may see people who are good at what they do, but they're unable to have a conversation about it. If people are unrecognized in certain spaces too, you have to really realize and think about what you want. I can't compare myself to anybody else, really, because I have my strengths and I have my weaknesses and things that I know that I need to work on. But if you're not being recognized for something that you really want to be recognized for, and you're not taking stock of what you could also change within yourself and change with how and where you're positioned, it makes a huge difference. I've seen people who are quiet as a mouse, artists who are quiet as a mouse, have huge exhibitions and make a lot of money on their work. They're quiet. What do they do that's different than someone else? They have relationships with people in places that position, that help position them where that person wants to be. It's a scaffold. Basically, making it as an artist in our world is a building a certain kind of strategic scaffolding that it's not necessarily about who you know, but it's who knows you and who's willing to put your name somewhere. You know, who is willing to step out and do something for you selflessly? That's what makes it true, makes someone truly successful in our world. People think, well, if I reach out to so-and-so and and I have a show at so-and-so, just because you have a show at MMK in Germany, that's just one show at one museum. And in that same previous episode in the podcast, the woman, it works at the National Gallery. And she was like, this may not be the right context. I'm really also keep circling back to this idea of dialogue in so many ways like because dialogue is also about like talking also being quiet and in that sense if you want to build relationships or you want your work to be in some kind of dialogue or you to be in a dialogue you still have to be say something be quiet and you can't be like saying something to all the galleries at the same time you had to find out like who am I talking to and and what do I what do I want to ask them what do I want them to ask me also what would you want from these people what do you want from success? Because I thought having a big old show at the Museum of Modern Art and doing all these shows at these museums would garner me something. It has garnered me a place to show my work. It doesn't make me rich beyond compare, but I've worked so hard to get to a certain point of presenting my work and like working so hard in the studio. Now, all I want to do is be at home and cook food with my grandmother. And I want her to be safe and be comfortable. 
So you have a shift in priorities. Huge shift in priorities. I mean, but I think when it was all about making the shows and doing the exhibitions and having the gallery stuff, it was always about the work. So no matter how you think of your successful or not successful, or if you can read or not read, or if you can write a statement or not write a statement, it's it's about building the insulation around all of what you can do, working to make what you can't do stronger, and being in conversation with colleagues at your level and continue to desire relationships and developing dialogue with people who are at another level. Kiyoshi Yamamoto. If you are not like Picasso, so everyone else have a little bit of this feeling. Because if I compare myself to you guys, you'll be many things that you have achieved that I have not. So I can always get in a feel that I feel that I have not been recognized. But I think in here, this question, the person is maybe having trouble themselves, like comparing a lot with another friends and colleagues. I think that this person has a lot of friends doing many many activities and then it's like reflecting back oh but why i'm not also doing like them and after many many years of psychiatrist uh, treatment i can tell you this you have to move on and not compare yourself to other people all the time you can compare yourself like for five minutes <laughs> cry with a hug and then move on but i think girl if you're gonna really stay in this mess you're gonna get depressed and you're really not gonna produce Right. I guess it has to do with the reasons why you're doing something as well. Are you doing it just to get recognized? Because then do you change what your work's about to get recognized? Or are you really into what you're doing? I, I, do, th I do think it would be hard, though, to have no professional recognition. I don't know if this person has none, but that would be hard if you were just making art, applying, and constantly getting rejected. I know many people who has, has been in this situation. I have been in them the first two years I finished. I graduated from school. I applied for everything. I got nothing. And of course, I started to see friends and classmates doing quite well. Of course, you get a little bit like, oh, what's going on? And you start to doubt yourself. Oh, am I not good enough? Or maybe am I not pushed that much? But then come again, you have to work with yourself. If I did not have those friends, maybe I'd not be pushing myself either. So now when you look back at those years, what was like the things that kept your spirit up? Oh, I really love weaving and I really love what I do. So does it matter if I got like 10 emails with like rejection letters? I knew that I had two meters of wool to finish. So I was just sitting in that loom and went for it. So it was when I just stopped giving a fuck, actually. Like, I don't care, really. I will really do this myself. Just start doing. And when rejection come, I was like, yeah, one more. <laughs> I have this folder. I love folders in my computer. I love making folder, putting things in and I have a folder of rejection letters of applications that I have done. And they are so like the same. They start to think that those organizations just like copy each other, <laughs> copy and paste, <laughs> paste each other. And I feel that like last year I was um, talking with a friend and I had to go through some external hard disk and I found this folder. I do have 222, exactly 222 rejection letters in that folder. <laughs> <laughs>
And I just feel like this is gonna be amazing that they have print all of them and put in a book. So I totally understand what this person is going through. And I feel that we should talk more about that too, though, because I don't think that this is very easy to say, like, oh, am I mingled too little? Or am I not doing these things? It's so little to blame in things. But we have to remember that in this art system, because it is a system or whatever, or ecology, or let's call it like a system, it's not enough gallery spaces for everyone. We don't have the governments, the institutions do not supply enough workspace for us, for all of us. So that's the problem. The problem is not us. The problem is not the artist. We deliver, we do, friend. The problem is not you getting recognized. The problem is that we don't have more galleries. And the few galleries that exist or the institutions, they like, they hold in what they know is good for them. So it's, it's different. It's not about us. Let's not blame us. Let's blame like, hello, government. Let's open more gallery. Hello, Palacio Tuki. Why don't you have three, four satellites? You know what I mean? Like, hey, Metropolitan, why you make those huge gala mat balls and you don't have enough for us? You know what I mean? Like, let's blame them who make the system, not us who need the system. And another thing that Anna and I had talked about off, I think it was off record, was um, sometimes people are just applying for the wrong things for their art. I saw this when people were applying for graduate school and I was on a forum and then people would say, you know, I'm a, they'd list the name of the schools they're applying to and then they'd have a link to their portfolio. And the work would just be like, of course, that school is never going to accept that person because that's not the type of conversation you're having or the type of uh, work that you're making. And I think some people can't see that. Like you do have a community out there. It's just not the one that you maybe think you should or think you belong to. I'm really glad how you brought up, um, you know, like where do you find joy? Like what kind of use does that have in itself as sort of a, a reason to do what you do? But I'm thinking if it's difficult to figure out like what kind of context your work or your practice makes sense to be in, maybe you can ask some other colleagues that you trust to be like, hey, in what kind of community or context does it make sense to apply or relate to because different places different organizations institutions had different kinds of like profile and interests also depending on like who works there who runs the programs like where does it make sense to to be or to to strive for yeah maybe we should move move to another city because i don't think no one should bear those time of because there's a little bit of guiltness in there like the way i read this this person how somehow feel a little bit guilt i don't know i feel this person somehow is seem themselves a problem like what have i done wrong or and i don't think that's only about this person i have been seeing this lately you come to collaborate with an institution and you know like they want to work with you you know like those 15 people who work there has been researching about you or maybe about what's your artist pra practice about it and a little bit like oh my god all those people know this why you need not only to be in the right place you need also to have all this vibe <laughs> around you around your art and it is no recipe it's really no recipe to get recognition it's no recipe to get our exhibition space is no recipe to do a good application i have been sitting also in committees that i see the application like this is so good this person is amazing i just don't have an exhibition space or time to put this project on and you don't know when you in which stage you got it in that selection if you got really close if you've got rejected in the first second when they have seen your portfolio, we should talk more about that. 
I also agree. I feel that, for instance, at art school, no one talks about that. The kids don't know that they're going like, to be rejected for the rest of their lives. <laughs> for their life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just chose a profession where you're going to get rejected and judged by day. So it's something that we should talk about it and try to help each other. Maybe the friends that she have can also give a hand Ask for help. I mean, I have done this before. I had a friend. I really want to do printmaking. And I told her, like, hey, can you give me a hand? I want to show my printmaking. I mean, I'm not on about weaving. I also do this, 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 that. And I called her. I was like, hey, can I have a show with you? <laughs> I really love your work. And I feel that I need to be close to you so people can kind of look at my printings. And she was so cool. You know what I mean? Like, she was amazing. I'll be forever grateful. She was like, yeah, let's do it. And we had so much fun doing this thing together and cost nothing for her. And she'll have this person for the rest of her life that's grateful. And doesn't matter what she asks me, I will be there for her. If you have really, really that network or that friend, maybe someone, in, in, and she, she went to school, not with me. She graduated like a couple of years before me. And I felt that I had not like a close friendship with her but we knew each other we had been drinking and smoking together so I felt that I could um, ask that and there was what could happen was get one more rejection I already had 222 <laughs> exactly maybe that does answer the question in terms of mingling because that's mingling in a like a genuine friendship way with somebody that then led to you feeling comfortable enough to ask to work with them you just go in there and beg, like, hey. <laughs> Please. And, and something that we've talked about in previous seasons is kind of for people to see your work, they need to have seen it or they need to know of you. Like, you have to have some sort of visibility because um, how are otherwise people supposed to get to know your work and your practice? I don't know much about, yeah, more than from the question, like how am I not mingling enough? I don't know how much you're mingling to start out with or like how, how, are, how are you, what kind of community you're involved in. But uh, in order for people to recognize your work, you have to be sort of present in certain ways. Um, another thing as well is like we see this idea of being an artist in only one form, this form that you're going to have a studio, you're going to produce, and then you need to have a gallery, and then you need to show, and you need to have an opening, and then one more. And I, I feel that to be an artist is much more than that. To be an artist, you can be a very good like educational person. You can really like put all your art skills to go educate people, old people, kids, a college, whatever, you know what I mean? Like creating, producing, go and produce other people's art too. That's amazing. Assisting, I have been like assistant of artists for like the five first years I graduate. I have been assistant many, many, many people and I learned so much and you even get paid. <laughs> so I feel like creating, you know, like working in the galleries, like so many ways to be an artist than only this box. Sometimes I even react to myself when I say like, oh, I have like so, so many shows this year. Like, my God, so conservative. So that's why I always try to break. If I have like five shows in a year, I need to have like one performance, one this, one that, make some points. You know what I mean? Like, have to break, not to be this system that, oh, go to that studio, produce like a crazy, need to have an opening. It's a system that we need to also break this out, you know, like to be an artist is more than only have shows and reviews. To be an artist actually is a commitment. 
Dear Audley and Anna, whenever I make art about something serious instead of silly, I get imposter syndrome, as if I don't have the right to make that kind of art. How do I push back these thoughts? Eric Satyogelson. Well, I think that question presupposes a few things that I don't don't necessarily agree with. For one, it presupposes that serious art, whatever that is, is somehow superior, maybe, to a silly art, and I don't think that's true at all. Then she wants to, or he wants to, whoever asked the question, uh, wants to push back these feelings, but maybe you shouldn't. Maybe they're telling you something that's really valuable. Maybe they're telling you that you actually shouldn't do this, because, yeah, imposter syndrome is real. Uh, we all feel it, I think, but... It doesn't always mean that you should do everything there is. I mean, maybe you shouldn't be making art at all. I mean, there's so many artists who make art that shouldn't really exist, that there's no point in existing and certainly shouldn't be part of the commercial art scene or be part of any kind of like institutional dialogue. So the thing is that what is it that you specifically as a person is uniquely qualified to do or make? And that is what you should focus on. And if that isn't serious art however you define that, well, then you really shouldn't be making serious art. I mean, there's so many people who make shitty abstract paintings, and there are people who are still stuck in modernism and making art that just isn't of any value at all. First of all, questions like, why do you feel like you have to make serious art? And do you have a unique perspective to make art about these topics? Because if not, maybe you should just not do it and let someone else who's qualified to do it make that art instead. Because, for example, for me, my background, being being queer, being in a certain kind of relationship, having a certain background dealing with that, maybe I have a perspective that could be worth talking about when it comes to that. If you're a cishet artist working in Norway, coming from a bougie middle-class family, and you really don't know anything about this, but you want to appear as an activist, or you want people to think that you are, you know, a good guy, well, maybe the good thing to do would just be to sit back and offer a platform to someone else who has an interesting point of view and not necessarily make art about this or do actual activism. Because making LGBT art, making anti-racist art, not everyone is meant to do that and sometimes you can lend support to others or do actual activism instead of this seriousness. And if your idea of serious art is like a Sean Scully abstract painting, please don't. Oh <laughs> I was also really questioning, like, what, what does serious art mean? Yeah, does it mean, would it be political? Or what if it's about, about uh, grief or, like, uh, another type of serious... Uh, yeah, it all depends on, like, how you define serious. I, and I also question this idea of, uh, as you mentioned, uh, like, with, like, silly versus serious. Uh, I think it's more a question of, like, like, how important is it to you? What's the urgency? If, if it's silly and urgent, that's damn serious to me. Yeah, I think a, a perfect example of an artist who's silly and serious at the same time is Anna Elon. <laughs> okay, <Joshua. laughs> I, I mean, I still remember going to your presentation and your, your project, like, panning for gold. It was, like, something ridiculous yeah, and absolutely. serious, but you took it ridiculously silly, but you took it so seriously. And then there's, like, bigger implications beyond what you're actually, you know, it made me think a lot. Like, your work makes me think a lot. I mean, sometimes when you're watching a comedian, their whole job is to make people laugh and be silly, but they can be saying things that are really serious. You know, they could be like talking about death or talking about horrible experiences they've gone through, but in a way that gives it a little levity and allows them to talk about it more easily. I think you you can be both. There's some art that I've seen that's just so, it just seems like all silliness. And then when you try to learn more and like, okay, let me read the little pamphlet or the walls. It's just like, there seems like there's nothing there. That's, I think, maybe 
what Eric is talking about, where you're just like, why is this even taking up space? The, the cynical uh, silliness that becomes kind of like commercially weaponized. And uh, since uh, I'm long gone caring, like, you know, JTT gallery <laughs> painters, like it's like super hip and super cool. And is there something there? Usually not. It's just like airbrush, airbrush, airbrush. And it's colorful and it's silly. Uh, the stuff that is depicted is silly, but it sells well. Should it be made? Does it have much value? No, probably not. So that kind of like weaponized silliness, yeah, I really don't like that. And that's um, it's just kind of like a cancer on the art world. But uh, I also work with other artists to do stuff that is on the surface level super silly. I mean, even some things like, you know, gender expression can be seen as silly to some people. And colorful kind of naivistic art brute style stuff, outsider art, stuff like that can also appear to some people as just silly like you know my kid could do that kind of stuff and that is can be super serious and incredibly important so of course we don't want to want to discourage that but uh, when we talked about the idea of what could be seen as serious i mean i think a lot of people would look at museum collections whether it's in the us or in europe scandinavia and look at that kind of work as the idea about what is serious and i think some people maybe those coming out of art school, but just as well those who look at it kind of from the outside and think like, well, this is serious art, like this is proper art, and the rest maybe isn't worth looking at. But that disqualifies so many people. I mean, it disqualifies most people who don't come from a privileged background who could afford to spend, you know, five to seven years in uni and work on that kind of thing and have those kind of references. And of course, if we look at that artist, the only art that's serious, well, that's really dangerous when i was thinking about the seriousness in in the question and also basically as we all pointed out it really depends how you define the different terms that are expressed in the question but i think as part of a artistic process where you try to find a new direction or investigate new new things in 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 your head in your work then i think of course one should try to go places that are unknown but that doesn't mean or that you're unsure of going into something that you're unsure of can be very rewarding but i think it's also different to get into a process of investigating something that's new to you or a little scary but that does not also mean that you should like show it in a gallery or show it at a museum it's exploring something not everything i make should be made public i think with the imposter syndrome that's happening with this person when they're making serious art is the it's not something that is true to them maybe it's what they think they're supposed to be making like if you feel like oh climate change i should be making work about that but it's not something you're passionate about otherwise then you're kind of forcing it so i think that's where the imposter syndrome comes from because if something is truly important to you and something that you're really into you shouldn't feel weird to to be serious about it i'm not sure about that though because we all have like things that hunt us in our heads you know like that says like you're or maybe not everyone but that that make you doubt yourself if the person has been making so-called what they call silly art or has been doing like one thing for a while and then like has an urgent need to to do something different but yeah maybe it's too big of a shift so i see what you mean because it could be just not about how they feel about the topic but about public perception i've been doing x for a long time that's how people know me and now if i start doing this i look like i'm just suddenly jumping on a bandwagon when this is something I've wanted to do, but just, you know, finally got the chance or the courage to do it. 
Absolutely, and I think that that's uh, really key because if this is something that you genuinely want to do, but what is stopping you is something external, like for example, oh, I'm worried about how someone will look at me if I make this kind of work, then yeah, you just need to push through it and realize that everyone feels about pretty much the same because yeah when something's really really important and you feel like like this actually matters yeah i think a lot of people will feel imposter syndrome there because like am i actually the right person to do this do i have the right background all that but if you genuinely go like no this is truly me like i need to be doing this but i'm worried that someone might think I'm not good enough well then you just have to say that well i as an artist say that like this is really me this is what i want to be doing now this is what needs to be produced then you just have to go ahead and then as Anna said though if in the end you could look at this with a few months of perspective and go like mm, maybe i'm not going to show this in the gallery that's perfectly fine i think maybe it can be a good idea as well when you mention the imposter syndrome is to sort of break down and like, what are the thoughts that get into your head? And like, which of them has to do with my work? Which of them has to do with my mental health? Which of them has to do with what? So it becomes more clear what you're actually feeling and what the, the doubts are connected to. Are they connected to your work? Are they connected to your uh, other things about you that are not necessarily about the content of the work, but other things? Now I'm trying to like hear the voice of my therapist as I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this makes me think about sometimes when a when a comedian starts taking on serious roles. At first, you're like, "For real?" <laughs> you know, they they you just know them as like you know, if like like Jim Carrey or something, and then they're like in an emotional scene in a movie. But you're so used to laughing at them. But I think it's just something like you have to work through because obviously that's something that those you know comedians want to do, and you have to just go ahead and have like a, maybe this awkward phase where people don't know if they should take you seriously to the point where they do and sometimes if people are have like a very joking personality and all of a sudden they say something very serious it can also just add extra weight to mm. it you know if you're not used to people address things in a serious manner then all of a sudden you can kind of give them extra weight in that serious you think so but sometimes also you don't know if they're still joking <laughs> or being sarcastic but uncertainty is fine for an, for an artist though isn't it like um, if people are a bit confused well it's not necessarily a problem true Espen Birkedal if you want to do something serious you have to research it good also mm-hmm. and then how can you like be an imposter if you can like back up your your progress or your thoughts that's a really good point so that has to do with going deeply into something instead of a surface level. Uh, yeah, because you will, you have to show your every, your cards. Um, if it, if you do, do like just only silly stuff, how can you not be an imposter in the silly ways of things? <laughs> Why can you not be have an imposter syndrome when you're doing silly stuff? Yeah. It's about confidence. They're they're confident yeah. doing silly things. What they call silly things. What is silly thing? Is something that you hadn't had any thought behind? Is it just something you make without any? Because if it would be like having no thought behind, it would be difficult to be very confident in something you had no thought behind. Yeah. <laughs> but there are people like I can think of people in my life who have a hard time talking about serious things, and they always try to make a joke when it comes up. Yeah. I mean, the person could have a lot of interesting ideas, but their way of coping with with them is to kind of play it off more lightheartedly and laugh about it. When you make things that are kind of funny or silly, but with maybe with satire or something, it could be good 
and people will love it. But I guess this person is afraid if maybe do a show that's centered around something really serious and she never done that before. And the reaction maybe from a, a reviewer or somebody who reviews art would be like, I know this artist, this is not good that she does this or he does this or yeah. Maybe that's the thing she's afraid of or he, he <laughs> they. I think I have the opposite problem where reluctant to make anything, you know, like I can't just go in my studio and just make whatever. And I see simple works that people make and I'm like, admire them. And, but for me, I feel like I need to know so much about what I'm doing and why I'm doing every particular thing and why I chose the colors I chose and why I chose every aspect. Cause I, in my mind, I have some person asking, <laughs> what is this about? Why did you do this? What does this mean? Why did you choose to use this material? And I, that might be like a remnant from graduate school or something, just being interrogated about every little as, aspect. So in my head, it's like it can be stifling because I yeah. feel like everything has to be so serious, or at least the way I talk about it has to be serious. And it's hard for me to be more lighthearted or silly or just make something for an aesthetic reason. But is the question, how can I do something serious? Let's see, what is like the wording? No, the the question is about more like how how do I get rid of the imposter syndrome? Yeah, I, I want to keep doing this, but I feel silly. How do I just push back the thoughts and do it anyway? Yeah, so, so serious is kind of the opposite of silly. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm just trying to like deconstruct it because it's so loose also, the question. Mm-hmm. If we could see like the art, like some pieces of the silly art, yeah, we would understand much more. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like how 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 silly yeah. is it? Yeah. Is it a like as I you know, I, is it a Jeff Koons balloon dog? Like is it that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then is it this the next work like about genocide or something, you know? Yeah, cuz you also have to know uh, this person if you're listening that you have to be and have experienced certain things also maybe if you want to do so serious stuff that's like genocide or anything like that. Like you mean, like certain things are so serious that they need to be spoken about from people who've actually experienced those things or been near those things. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because that's that's more, I guess, guess uh, imposter syndrome. Even though if you research a lot of like that stuff, it, you might be put in the imposter syndrome if you you or your like people or whatever else. Oh, you basically you are an imposter. That's what you mean. Like, yeah, the imposter yeah. without syndrome. imposter without a syndrome (laughs) I think the term though that's been imposter syndrome which has like been become broadly used the last few years because so many of us relate to it and because it's so widely used like it's kind of like a loose way of like talking about different diagnoses as well can sort of it's used so widely that it's that sometimes you still have to ask like well maybe it can be good for something or what kind of questions does it raise in you this feeling i think a bit of humility there are people who are really confident in themselves but they're so wrong you know like they just confidently push forward anything and they don't stop to doubt it and i think imposter syndrome is about doubting and humility if you talk about imposter syndrome and that in terms of like yeah, doubt and humility. I mean, those are great features and great for like developing thoughts and art. So maybe you can like pet your your um, imposter syndrome as well on the head and thank you for like, welcome welcoming the questions and yeah, like, welcome it. Um, if it's like a quick 
quick job. It's just not silly work. They can make that and then have a, like a quick plan B and go back to like the silliness, which is which is like the the thing that the person is so uh, secure in maybe. And just test it, test it. Because I think it's really important to just test things as, as long as it's not if offensive or can destroy people's lives. Yeah, but, but sometimes like, you don't know what that's something you make, what you can do. So sometimes you still have to like finish a thought or finish a work, but then you need to like evaluate it and look at it. What is, what is this? What does it do? Because sometimes it's difficult to know what something does before it's made. So, so like finish your own sentence and then consider like what does it do? And then expose it to a smaller public before you take it to a larger public. Like when I say that, I mean like friends who could would be honest with you and tell you something that maybe like you don't see about what you're doing. Yeah, that's good. Cool. Great. The Friends season of Ask Adelaide and Anna was commissioned for The Real Show at Cac Bretigny. Curated by Agnès Violo and Céline Poulin. And is supported by OCA, the Office for Contemporary Art Norway and Stavanger Municipality. Thanks to Anna's neighbor, Benjamin, who was so kind to record his cats chatting for us to use in our jingles this season. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>